glad to have visitors uh, at our services here at West Main. We're glad you've come to be with us, and it's good to see each one that has come back for the evening service. We are studying a series on evangelism, and uh, Wade had emailed me in the week and wondered what my lesson was, and so he's picked a couple songs that fit in with our theme tonight, and I appreciate that. Uh, I always like it when we can have songs. Uh, some songs, some lessons don't have songs that fit with them. I don't know too many songs on hell, so when we do that lesson, probably won't be songs on that maybe, but uh, evangelism does. So uh, for the next few Sunday nights, of course, next week we have our gospel meeting, but anyway, you lead and singing on Sunday night, uh, feel free to pick some of the other evangelism songs. And Wade, that song, I haven't heard that for a while. That, that's an old one. That goes back, kids, that goes back to when I was your age. I mean, that song goes by the 1800s. That's an old, that's, I don't know. That's, but R.J.'s revised that, hadn't he? Some of the words seem different to me. I don't know, maybe not, but it seemed, seemed like it. Maybe it's been so long since I heard it, but I liked it. It was good to hear that and fits in with what we're talking about tonight on the subject of evangelism. Now, I've entitled tonight's lesson, Get Fired Up. And I've been thinking about that a little bit, and that you know, that could have a misnomer about it a little bit. So let me kind of explain what I mean and don't mean uh, by that kind of title. I guess most of you already know by now that I have a little bit of interest in athletics, have had through the years. And, of course, this is a really favorite time for me. And I have noticed, Chris, you and I are the only ones talking basketball. I don't know. Maybe there's other people talking. Are we the only two here that like basketball this time of year? Uh, but if you like it, come up and talk to me. I'd be glad to, to talk about it. But, uh, you know, when we lived in Louisville, of course, that's big basketball. Uh, Missouri, Kansas area is big basketball. Um, so we've lived some places. Tennessee at times has been. But I know Texas is a football state, but you get fired up about football, right? And you know what it means to get fired up. But if you think about it, and I hear this a little bit more in basketball, but sometimes in football, you hear a color commentator talk about a player, and they talk about they're on fire. Or they'll talk about him and said, man, he is fired up tonight. Or they'll talk about how he's getting his teammates fired up or how the coach got him fired up. And when we talk about in the field of athletics, of any sport, about getting fired up, we know what that means, don't we? We know it has to do with enthusiasm, it has to do with excitement, but specifically it speaks to motivation. And so tonight we're going to be talking about motivation. Now there's all kinds of ways to get players fired up. You know, a lot of coaches use negative motivation. And there's, a, there's some coaches that you make a mistake, you're out of the game. And so they kind of put players on the edge a little bit that they – that they play the way they're supposed to be playing, not make a mistake, because sitting on the bench is motivation. It's a negative motivation, but it's a motivation. And there are some coaches, I don't know if this is still true or not, but I remember my day, you had to run laps. And uh, maybe if you had so many turnovers or did this wrong, next day of practice, you run laps. When I was at Florida College, we had a curfew, and uh, if you broke curfew, you had to run laps. And I started dating this girl in the second semester, semester of my freshman year named Norma Jean Slaughter. And I was, the time got away. Just enjoyed being there so much. And the student manager came in, and I wasn't in my room, and it was curfew. And the next day, the coach said, Well, you've got to run 100 laps. I ran 100 laps. 
Now, that's motivation. It's negative motivation, but it, it's motivation. I wouldn't leave a curfew anymore. No matter how much I enjoy being with Norma Jean Slaughter, I said, I got to get back. I don't want to run 100 laps again. See? I heard about a coach, a swimming coach. Now, this is supposed to be a true story. I can't really believe it. That uh, motivate his swimmers, he put a live crocodile into the pool. Now, that's, it's, it, now he gave the swimmers a head start. And said he had timed the crocodile, knew how fast a crocodile could swim. I don't know about that kind of motivation. No, what if the swimmer got a leg cramp? That doesn't sound like a good thing. But, you know, there's all kinds of motivation. It was Vince Lombardi, the great football coach, that told his players that if you aren't, if you aren't fired with enthusiasm, you will be fired with enthusiasm. Now, in the business realm, we think about that a little bit, that businesses and uh, use negative motivation to try to get you to do what you're supposed to do to meet sales quotas or other things like that. And even the Bible at times uses negative motivation. The Bible does talk about eternal consequences. But if all we hear over a long period of time is threats and warnings and condemnations, then we can become frustrated and cynical and indifferent. And sometimes in the area of evangelism, if we're not careful, we may end up, especially some of us that preach and teach, can beat people over the head with kind of a negative approach to evangelism. To try to put a guilt trip on people. And I'm not a, I'm not a big believer in that. And so I want to approach the lesson tonight from a positive standpoint and think about some positive motivations that ought to get us excited and fired up and interested and enthused about evangelism. Now, I thought I would look up the word motivation, and the dictionary says it's a state of being motivated. All right, that, that helps us a lot a little bit. Or something that is seen as a need or a desire that causes a person to act. Well, we will look at the Bible tonight and think about some things that we may see as needs or desires that might cause us to act. Motivation can be defined as the gold or object of a person's actions or incentives. So when we think about this from a scriptural standpoint of being a soul winner, of being evangelistic, what's the goal? What's the object? What should be our incentive to get us to be involved in evangelism? Someone put it this way. said, motivation is an inner drive, an idea captured in the imagination. It can be harnessed to an intense drive toward a goal essential to succeeding in any endeavor that you try. Well, effective evangelism, let me suggest, is dependent more, I think, upon our motivation, on the right kind of motivation, than even at times on our knowledge or training on our experience. True, we can profit from training classes. And true, we can be helped with certain techniques. And certainly, there are materials that can point us in the right direction. But I just want to think tonight for a few minutes about motivation and four motivations that I think will help us in being more excited about evangelism. What are some godly, godly motives? Well, the first motive I would suggest is that it is an exciting adventure. When we think about winning souls for Christ. In fact, the idea of living the Christian life, the Bible speaks of it as being a joy. 
the book of Philippians, for instance, 18 times in the little book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul talks about the Christian life and says it's a joy or, and that we ought to rejoice in Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1 and verse 25, he says, Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and for the joy of faith. And if there is not a joy in your faith, if there is not a joy in living the Christian life, then, then something is wrong. There's a problem somewhere that you need to figure out. Because the Christian life, the Christian walk, was not meant to be a drudgery or, or something that we just have to endure. It ought to be something that we rejoice in, that we're excited about, that we enjoy serving the Lord and living a life of faith, the joy of faith. Or we look at Jesus and the motivation that was set before him. The Hebrew writer said that as we look to Jesus, our example, the one that's the author and finish of our faith, says who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, when we th come to communion on Sundays and we think about Jesus on the cross and remember him, it's hard for us to think too much about joy when it comes to the cross, isn't it? that we could rejoice in that. And yet, even though Jesus endured the suffering and the shame and the pain and all of the things that went along with the cross, there was a joy, the Hebrew writer says, that was set before him that gave him the motivation to endure the cross. Now, what was the joy? Well, I think I know. I think it's the fact that Jesus came to save sinners, that the joy that Jesus found was he came to seek and save the lost. And that Jesus found the joy in winning souls that could come into relationship with him. This caused him to be able to endure what he needed to endure and do the work that was set before him. Not only that, there is an exciting uh, adventure in soul winning because just soul winning itself brings joy. Think about this. There is joy in heaven when a soul is one. You remember in Luke chapter 15 is that trilogy of, of parables about the lost coin and the lost sheep and then the lost son. And there are a number of things in Luke 15 that we see as, as common denominators. Of course, all three were lost. All three needed to be found. But one of the things that's in common, there was joy. When, when the woman found the coin, she was excited, and she called her neighbors to rejoice. When the man found the sheep that had wandered away, he rejoiced at that. He, there was joy. And when the father's son, the prodigal son, came home, he killed the fatted calf. And there was a party, and there was rejoicing. And what Jesus says is the moral to that is that there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Now, I know there's some things in the Bible that are figurative and that are metaphors. I'm not so sure that's one of them. I, I have to believe that there literally is joy in heaven, that the angels do rejoice, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are excited when one person repents, when one person comes into a right relationship with Him. And so if we're involved in evangelistic outreach in any of its facets or forms, know this, that there is joy in heaven 
when a person comes to Christ. That's a pretty good motivation, isn't it? You want to put a smile on God's face? You want to hear a shout among the angels? Be involved in evangelism. Luke 15, verse 10, all right? Then there is joy to the soul winner. And the Psalms, in Psalm 126 and verse 6, the psalmist said, He who continually goes forth weeping, reaping, as I said weeping, bearing seed for the sower, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. There is joy, there is rejoicing, and we sometimes sing that song, bringing in the sheaves. But there is joy to all of the saints, not just the soul winner themselves. And certainly, if you've ever been involved in evangelism and through your efforts, someone obeyed the gospel, you know that joy. You know that excitement. And when I see other people involved in that, I'm excited for them. And so there is personal joy for the soul winner, but there is joy for all of us when a person comes in a relationship with the Lord. In Acts chapter 15, it says, So they, being sent on their way by the church, passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all of the brethren. Well, there was joy when the account was made of the success on these missionary tours. And then there's, of course, the joy of the soul that's been won, the soul that obeyed the gospel. Will you remember the account in Acts chapter 8 when Philip joined himself to the chariot of the Ethiopian treasurer and studied with him? And the treasurer, at the conclusion of that study, was baptized. And it says in Acts 8, verse 39, that when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And so there is a joy, you see, for evangelistic outreach in heaven for the soul winner, for all of the saints, and for the soul that was won. But another motive is the fact that evangelism provides a sense of purpose in our lives. In fact, it may say, be said even a new sense of purpose. It's good to ask ourselves, what is our purpose in life? And I suppose in some context, if you were asked your purpose in life, or some people at least were asked, that they might say, well, to have a good family. I, I, I want to have a, a, I want to be successful in my family life. Or maybe a person would say, uh, my, my purpose in life is to have a successful career. I, I, I want to have a fulfilling career and a successful career. Or maybe... You, your purpose revolves around certain relationships, or, or maybe it's in service to your community. There may be any number of things. I've heard people say, well, I want to make a difference. I, I, want, I want to make a difference and, and so that when I die that people will know that I have lived, that I've made a difference. Well, there's a lot of reasons, and, and good reasons, I, could, I would say, that we might answer that question with those kinds of answers. But think about some biblical answers for a minute. How about fearing God? Is your purpose to fear God and keep the commandments of God? Now, I don't mean fear in a sense of trembling necessary, necessarily or being afraid, but fear in the sense of a, of a healthy respect, of an awe of the awesome nature of who God is. 
In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, the Bible says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Some versions say the whole duty of man. Well, that's a sense of purpose, isn't it? To have a respect for God, a fear for God, and keep the commands of God? Or how about seeking first the kingdom of God? We get caught up in a lot of things in life, but it is all the thing or all the things that we're involved in in life revolve around ultimately our purpose of putting the kingdom first. In Matthew six and verse thirty three, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. What things? Well, in the context, he talks about all the things that we think about of a material nature. And we we think about food and shelter and clothing that are mentioned in Matthew chapter 6. But Jesus said, don't become overly anxious or worried about those things. Your Father will provide you for those things. But what you need to do is to seek first the kingdom of God. You need to seek the righteousness of God. And as you do that, these things will take care of themselves. That ought to be our purpose. Or how about to set our affections upon things that are above, things that are spiritual. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3. He said, if you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Now, when you look at those three passages, and we look at this from three different angles about purpose, isn't soul winning just a natural part of that? I mean, really? Is it, is it evangelistic outreach, a part of fearing God and keeping His commandments, and seeking first the kingdom of God, and putting our affection on things that are above? Isn't soul winning a part of that? When you think about what is the purpose of God's people, a church consultant was once asked, to survey members of a thousand churches. Albeit, I'm sure most of these churches, maybe all of them, had different denominational concepts. But the question was asked of these thousand these thousand churches, its members, why does the church exist? Eighty-nine percent of the people who respond to that said the church's purpose is to take care of my family and my needs. Now, we might would shake our heads at that. In fact, I saw a couple of people shaking their heads at that and think, well, how carnal is that? How selfish is that? And I'm glad those of us that are part of the Lord's church here at West Maine that we're not like that. I really wonder what the answer would be if we had a consultant go around to just churches of Christ around the nation and ask that question, why does the church exist? Now, we may not answer that way, but I want to tell you what, in my 40-plus years experience of preaching, I will tell you that a lot of times it seems like that a lot of church members have the idea the church exists to meet my needs. That, that's why the church is here. Now, in that survey, 11% said the purpose of the church is to win the world for Jesus. Only 11%. I would like to think we would fare better if that question was asked. But I don't know if we would or not. 
What is the purpose of God's people? What are we about? Isn't, isn't our purpose to win souls? To be able to work in such a way and to live in such a way and conduct our lives in such a way that we can not only go to heaven ourselves, but we can take others along with us? Now, if you haven't been here for the first couple of these lessons, let me just stop and interject something here parenthetically. Because someone would say, oh, no, you mean kids going to try to get us all go out and go knock on doors and go door to door? I, I've never said that, and I won't, won't say that in a series. That might be a fine thing for some folks to do, but we're not talking about that. We're not even talking about in this series of every single person necessarily doing one-on-one -on -one classes with people. But what we are talking about is looking for opportunities and ways and means that all of us in some form or fashion, based on our talents, gifts, skills, and abilities, can support evangelism, can be involved in some way. If, if it's something just simply, as simple as we talked about in one of the lessons, of leaving a, a card at a restaurant to invite someone to come to church, that all of us are committed to the idea of evangelistic outreach. Hopefully we understand God's purpose for His people is to win souls. Matthew chapter 9, beginning verse 10, it happened, as Jesus said at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were appalled at that. In fact, when you study the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how many times do we find the Pharisees critical of Jesus because he associated with sinners? In fact, what we read earlier in Luke 15 about the rejoicing there, Jesus told those two parables, three parables because of the criticism of the Pharisees that, look, he's hanging around with sinners. Now, of course, they had a, an agenda. They had a motive behind that, didn't they? In other words, their idea was birds of a feather flock together. And if he's hanging around with sinners, he must be one of them, you see, was, I think, their idea. But they criticized, your teacher eats with tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to down the cross to bring sinners into covenant relationship with him, that they might be cleansed by his blood, that they might be saved, of which all of us are sinners, hopefully cleansed by the blood of Jesus and seeking to walk in the light. But we have all been in that situation. And we all need to stop and to think about our purpose collectively as well as individually is God's people. If all we do is meet Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, is that enough? Or if we have great classes, is that enough? Or if we have warm fellowship and really enjoy being together, is that enough? Or, or, or enthusiastic worship services, is that enough? Well, I think we're called upon, I know we're called upon to be soul winners. Being a soul winner, being involved in evangelistic outreach, gives us a whole new sense of purpose. 
and it will take any worthy ideal and we can use it to achieve our purpose for being. In other words, we can see our family as training ground to win them to the Lord. We can look at our jobs as opportunities to share Jesus with our coworkers. In our relationships out in the world, we can see ourselves as salt and light that allows Jesus to shine forth in our lives. We can look at our talents. We can look at our time. We can even look at our monetary treasure as ways to use those for a greater good of making a difference in the lives of other people. Soul-winning evangelistic outreach provides a new sense of purpose. This ought to be a godly motive to fire us up. Not only that, it appeals to the very best that is within us. Think about it. When we talk about winning people to Christ, does that not appeal to the love of God? Are we not trying to take them or bring them into a relationship with God? In Matthew 22, in the, what is called the great commandment, when Jesus asked what is the greatest commandment by the lawyer, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. It is. And when we are involved in sowing, does it not appeal to the love of God that God has given us a job to do, a mission to embark upon, a charge to keep? We don't want to let the Lord down, do we? And so if we love Him as He first loved us, do we not want to do what pleases Him and bring more people into relationship with Him? It appeals to the compassion that we should have for other people and especially for those that are lost. In Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the multitudes, it said he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What do we see when we look at the masses of people in our society today, they're lost. You know, sometimes we turn on the television and we, on news reports, we see maybe people that are rioting or marching or carrying placards or signs or, or spouting off ugly, vulgar epitaphs. What do we see? You know, it's pretty easy, in fact, really easy for us to label people and to look down upon people or, or, or to look at certain groups of people that believe certain things and assign to them some type of a pejorative epitaph, if not verbally to others, at least in our own minds. But Jesus looked at the multitudes of people, and he had compassion. He saw them as sheep with no shepherd. He felt sorry for them. It would do us good, I think, as we look in the world around us and we see the wickedness and the ungodliness. And we really see people so many times that have lost their way. They, they don't have direction. They don't have hope. They're living out something that they've been told will make them happy or pursuing some kind of a dream or direction they think is going to give them fulfillment. 
or listen to some inner voice or like the blind leading the blind. And it's easy to look down upon folks like that and to feel smug and superior that here we are, we're Christians, we know better. But Jesus saw people like that and he, his heart was touched and he felt a compassion for them. And it should motivate us, he said, to pray the Lord of harvest to send laborers into his harvest. I'm saying that evangelistic outreach appeals to the best within us, the love of God and compassion for the lost and, and even a, a feeling of fulfillment. We've mentioned that already, and there, there's nothing wrong with having a feeling of fulfillment. That certainly in our relationships, we want to have a feeling of fulfillment in relationship. But in marriage, we want to have that feeling of, of, of marital fulfillment in that relationship with our spouse. And, and, and that's good. I think it's even biblical. And certainly in our jobs or professions or occupations, as we seek to, to do good and to serve our fellow men and, and, uh, and to be a good force in society, there's, there's nothing wrong with a feeling of fulfillment. But Jesus came, he said, to give life in all of its fullness. He said that we might have life and we might have it more abundantly. Or as one version says, life in all of its fullness. Soul winning provides that feeling. To know that we have not only done something good for someone else that will affect them not just in time, but in eternity. Now, I know, that's, that's hard to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Eternity? And, and something that is endless? And yet, when we are involved in evangelistic outreach, we have impacted eternity, where a soul will be in eternity. We, we've done something special. We've done something that will live on. And then number four, I would suggest that when we're involved in evangelism, that we are appealing to a, a motive that is an investment that yields remarkable returns. In Matthew chapter 6, we referred to that earlier. Jesus began this section by saying, Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. You know, re regardless of what you treasure of a material nature, eventually something's going to happen to that. Eventually. I mean, whether it's a fine garment that is moth-eaten or whether it is a new car and finally the elements get the best of that car and now it's an old car and it's got, it's got rust spots in it. You see, or, or e even our money, it, it can be lost, it can be stolen. Uh, the stock market can, can plummet, real estate values can go down. And so all of those kinds of things can happen. But something that will not devalue are our spiritual investments. By laying up treasures in heaven, and are we not investing in that which is spiritual when we're involved in soul winning? We are. We're laying up treasures in heaven. Peter said that they of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away at the great noise and the elements will melt with perfect heat and both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so even if you're able to escape 
some problem of your material possessions that, that you keep your nice cars in the garage so they don't get rusty. <laughs> and you're very prudent with your money and with your with other material possessions. Think about a day, ladies and gentlemen, when every vintage car, every boat, every motorcycle, every piece of furniture, every collectible, everything you own will finally be destroyed in one great fiery blaze. And it's gone. It's gone. And then what? All that remains is the soul. That's it. The soul. And my investment in people will last for eternity. It will last beyond that day of the Lord. That's why I say it's an investment that yields remarkable returns. Our time, our effort, our energy, our resources are never wasted. Never wasted when we share the gospel with people. We don't know. We, we don't know what difference that seed planted might make. I'm reminded of a lady that was attending church in a congregation I preached outside of Dayton, Ohio a number of years ago, the Kettering Church. Still a very fine congregation there. My friend Matt Allen labors with him as one of the evangelists. And we got to know a lady there. She had been converted just a little while before we moved there. And, you know, I was only about 26 or 7 at the time probably. So she seemed like an older lady, but she probably is younger than I am now, okay? But she was quite a bit older than me at the time. But she had known about the Lord's Church for some 25 or 30 years. I'll put it that way, to put it in context. And had just recently obeyed the gospel. And when I got to know her a little bit and find out, you know what she told me? She said, I wasn't interested in religion when I was in the church. But she said, here's something that I knew in the back of my mind. That if I ever wanted to go to church, and I ever wanted to get religion, if I wanted to be a Christian, I was going to go to the Church of Christ because I knew those were the people that knew the Bible. And what had happened, she had had contacts through the years with people that were Christians. They planted a seed. A seed here, a seed there, a seed somewhere else. And I often wonder if any of those people that she had chance to meet or had met her through the years, ever knew she one day became a Christian. And so we, we don't know. We're not smart, en smart enough to know that some invitation, some track we give, some CD we give, some word of encouragement, something we say or do, or some light that we shine in a dark place, how are we to know that that will never produce anything? And we're too often too easily discouraged to give up and think, well, that didn't do any good. I suppose the people that had planted those seeds in that lady's life for a period of 25 or 30 years thought it didn't do any good to her either. But she never forgot it. And 
through a series of circumstances and events that often happen in people's life, she decided she wanted to make a change in her life. And she knew where to turn and knew where to find answers and became a faithful Christian. Don't discount the day of small things, of little things that you and I can do. That's motivation. That ought to fire us up. And by the way, can I just close with this? When we talk about being motivated, we talk about being fired up, we talk about it, we're not talking like you've got to be some gregarious, outgoing, loudmouth kind of a guy or gal. I'm reminded of the basketball player that we interviewed. Didn't, he didn't say much, and he was asked about that. And on the court, he just, he didn't, he just didn't say much. In the interviews, he didn't have much to say. And he was asked about that. He said, I let my game do the talking. I like that. And so maybe as we just out there living our lives, letting the light shine, being the salt, being what we ought to be, we let our Christian lives do the talking. That we're motivated, we're fired up. We're on fire for the Lord. I hope something is said tonight that helps a little bit in putting in perspective scriptural motivation for wanting to win souls to Jesus. May God bless us to that end. As we close tonight, we sing the song of invitation that Wade is selected. If you're not a Christian tonight, hope through this lesson you see we want you to be a Christian. And through faith, repentance, and baptism, and you've studied and you understand what all that means, and we come to Christ, we would love to serve you and help you in that regard. If there's something that you do that need that we can help you with, you owe a duty to the Lord in some way, or we, we can lift you in prayer before the throne of God, it would also be our pleasure to minister to you as well. While together we stand while we sing.